0: Welcome to this Endo Life episode 10. I'm Jessica Duffin and this podcast is all about bringing you guests who are battling chronic conditions and mental health issues in their own unique ways and are changing the lives of others with their amazing work. Today, I am chatting with Sashan Fearon-Josephs. The Womb Room is a digital space and now also a series of events for women to talk about reproductive health, gain knowledge and information, and really find a community to connect with and share their stories. Sashan has a jaw-dropping story that honestly, I had to like compose myself because her story is just unreal and She's gone through so much and I think it's amazing that as a result of what she's gone through, she started the womb room and that's really given her an incredible amount of strength to carry on forward, where I think many of us would have find it really challenging to do so. Um, we talk about Sashen's journey, um, which includes a cyst, um, a dermoid cyst, fibroids, adenomyosis, um polyps and endometriosis Um, and on top of that we discussed something that I've been wanting to talk about for a long time but um, this is really the first opportunity to discuss it but we talk about how women from BME communities are affected differently by reproductive health issues due to their genetics, due to history, uh, prejudice in the medical industry and how charities and the and health professionals aren't yet reaching out to women from BME communities in a way that's gonna have a real impact and that is tailored to them. Um, So we talk about that and we talk about what needs to change in the industry and how women could be supported better. And I I just think it's like essential, it's something that's been bothering me for a long time. And I'm so grateful to Sasha-Ann for coming on, being so honest about it and discussing it with me and sharing her knowledge. We also talk about research versus support services and how, you know, research is essential, but what are we doing with that research? Where is it going and who is it directly helping? Um, And finally, we are discussing the womb room and how you can get involved and how it can help you. Um, So, yeah, it's a really incredible conversation. It took us a long time to get to it. I'm not going to go into everything that has happened this week trying to record this podcast, but um, believe me, it has been a challenge and it is now quarter to five on Sunday evening and I'm getting it done now. Um, So yeah, I hope this reaches you guys and I really hope you enjoy it. Um, Yeah, I look forward to speaking to you soon. So
1: in December 2010, when I was in my
0: first year of uni, I
1: had a marina coil fitted. um, Mm. And having the coil fitted caused me to develop pelvic inflammatory disease. So I was in and out of hospital a lot over the Christmas period. And in the first week that I had the coil fitted, I'd put on a stone of water weight. So I went to the hospital after a couple of weeks and asked them for help basically um and my doctor the doctor at the hospital told me that I'd got pelvic inflammatory as a result of having the coil fitted but that they wouldn't remove the coil because they didn't want me to sue them if they perforated (laughs) my womb taking it out so he just gave me some antibiotics and some painkillers and sent me on my way and told me that I needed to Speak to my doctor who'd fitted it to get them to remove it once I went back to uni in January.
0: So, just for women who don't know what pelvic inflammatory disease is, can you explain what it is and why the coil? Why you got? Yeah.
1: So, um, pelvic inflammatory disease. It's essentially it's just the inflammation of the pelvis mm. um, and the pelvic area. And so the the area it just becomes inflamed, kind of in the same way that with your endo you get the inflammation of the okay. endometriosis. Um, it's just inflammation. But once you've had it once, it makes you kind of more prone to getting flare-ups of pelvic inflammatory later down the line. Right. I developed it as a result of having the coil fitted because the coil aggravated my cervix. Mm. But um, pelvic inflammatory is more commonly diagnosed if you've had chlamydia or sometimes if you've got an infection um from something, perhaps, that tends to be a circumstance under
0: which you'd typically get pelvic inflammatory. And it can cause infertility, am I right in thinking that?
1: If it's left untreated for a long period of time or if you get really bad flare-ups of pelvic inflammatory, it can cause infertility because it creates... It it encourages the growth of scar tissue in that area every time it gets inflamed,
0: yeah. So you went back to your doctors?
1: Yeah, I went back to my doctors in January um once I went back to uni Mm -hmm. and she took the coil out she said everything should return to normal because by this point I'd put on three stone in water weight that's crazy Um, and it wasn't it didn't settle down so I went back to the doctor and I was like look I'm still gaining weight the pain because by this point the pain from the pelvic inflammatory yeah had returned essentially the pain hadn't really gone away and I developed pain in my left Um, hand side as well which was really really painful and she sent me for a scan and the ultrasound showed that I had a fluid filled cyst that was growing on my right ovary that was I think it was 19 by 24 by 22 centimeters so I was scheduled to have surgery in Liverpool for July Mm. um, but by the time that I got to March but this is January
0: and they, they were willing for
1: you to wait until July because they didn't think it was... Because they didn't think it was as serious as it turned out to be because they tested my blood to see if I had cancer because their concern was that it was cancerous because of the rate at which it was growing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and all of my blood tests came back clear and that was why I think they stopped taking it as seriously. Um but, I mean, it's a
0: fucking huge cyst.
1: Yeah, <gasps> yeah
0: okay anyway but they
1: were just like oh, here's some painkillers we'll see you in july pretty Great. much and by the time that i got to march i'd had to suspend my studies at uni because i physically couldn't get into my lectures um i was in a&e every other night of the week oh my god and i went to a doctor's an emergency walk-in center mm. and they had said to me that my cyst was so big that it was starting to taut on the ovary and disconnect the ovary from the rest of the reproductive system. And that there was a risk because of the size of the cyst and because of how fast it was growing, that it would rupture and that if it ruptured, I would just die of septicemia because there's no way I would be able to get to a hospital in time or an ambulance would be able to get to me because of how much fluid was in the cyst. Right, yeah, yeah. So I think that was scary. That was the first time I'd ever kind of thought, wow, I might actually die from this. Mm. Like, I could actually die.
0: Yeah, that must um, have been really terrifying.
1: I think I just, yeah, I was only 19. So I didn't know how to, I didn't really know how to deal with everything. Mm. It, it was a lot. Yeah, yeah. So in the end, I I went to A&E that same night and I was in so much, it was the worst pain that I'd been in. And I'd been in a lot of pain up to that point. Mm. Um. And I asked to see a consultant and the consultant who was in charge that night told me that I wasn't her problem and she didn't want to see me. I should go home because I was already under another hospital in Liverpool. Wow. And in the end, my dad suggested a private consultant that my aunt had seen when she had um, health insurance from work. And so I made an appointment to go and see her and I saw her on the... I saw her on the Friday mm. and by this point we're in May so I saw her on the Friday and she was like yep yeah, come in next week Wednesday I'll do your surgery um because it, it has to come out you can't keep living like this and I no, was just of like, course but it was the first time a doctor had really listened to me right and taken yeah. me seriously mm. and um that was it was nice that she she took me seriously and so she said yeah come in on Wednesday and I'll do your surgery there's a possibility that you might lose your right ovary mm. but it's highly unlikely because normal procedure is we'll just drain the cyst and then it's usually
0: fine right she gives you wednesday which is amazing like private is on another level
1: i know but do you know what was really fortunate she, this consultant also works for the nhs mm. because i went to the appointment with my mom um and she was like well i can do your surgery on wednesday At the NHS hospital that she also works at, because she said, "If you want to pay for it privately, it's going to start at twenty five (gasps) thousand pounds." And I was like, "I don't have twenty five (laughs) thousand pounds."
0: Oh my god! And we can't get insurance either. We've ended.
1: Yeah, yeah, I know. So, and um, I was like, "Yeah, don't don't have twenty five grand." And she said, "I also need you to understand that's the starting price. That's assuming that nothing goes wrong, and that." is only including like a three-day stay in hospital. Anytime you stay in after that, it's an additional £1,500 a night <sighs> just to stay in the hospital. Um, and that's not including if you needed, if, if there was an emergency during the surgery, that would cost more.
0: Mm. So you got it done on you. That's amazing. That's incredible. Yeah. Okay. So
1: And I think it's important for women. Like I always tell women when they are going and seeking out specialists, Not to be afraid to look at um, doctors who have private clinics, because a lot of the time you can see a doctor at their private clinic and they may also work for the NHS.
0: Mm. But it
1: might just mean that you get seen a little bit quicker.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good to know. I didn't really ever think about it like that. Yeah. And
1: sometimes it means that you get to have your treatment at the private clinic, wherever that hospital is based, instead of having to go into an NHS hospital.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: What, but still get on the NHS? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: It just depends on who the consultant is.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so you, she said that they didn't think they were going to have to remove your ovary.
1: Yeah. Which was like best case scenario. Mm. Um, And that was kind of what we were all expecting. And so the surgery was supposed to take 20 minutes. It ended up taking like four or five hours because when they got Mm -hmm. in, they realized it wasn't as simple and straightforward as they first thought. So um, I woke up from my surgery And they said that they'd had to take the right ovary and the right fallopian tube because the cyst was so big, it had wrapped the fallopian tube around itself and just completely destroyed it. Oh,
0: my gosh.
1: And they said to me that even if I'd lived until July, which was unlikely because of how likely it was that the cyst would rupture,
0: Mm.
1: even if I had lived that long, she said I would have had to have a full hysterectomy because it was already starting to crush my uterus and my remaining ovary because of how heavy it
0: was. That's insane. Drained. I can't yeah. believe you were left like that.
1: Yeah. Um, and they drained just under five litres of fluid out of the cistern total.
0: Oh, my God.
1: So it would have just carried on getting heavier and heavier over time. So, yeah. Yeah. It
0: was a good thing that, you know, my dad suggested to her. Yeah, no. He it's, I mean, it literally a lifesaver, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um so yeah, so you've had you had the cyst removed and your yes. right ovary. Um, yeah.
1: I, I had the right ovary removed because they found that there was a dermoid cyst growing inside of it. So a dermoid cyst is made up of fatty um tissue mm-hmm. and other tissues. So my cyst had like teeth and hair and eyes. Um and because of that oh. I had to have the right ovary removed.
0: Wow. So I've heard of these very, are these rare? Because I've heard of them, but in like, uh, I don't know. They're always like, I I feel like they're just like horror stories like a cheap magazine will throw on the front cover and be like, you know, I lived with my, you know, what I mean, like my twin's embryo or something. <laughs> <laughs> Do yeah. you know what I mean? So like yeah. I've never spoken to someone who's actually had that. So... I. How does that work? Like is that a case is that because of a condition or is that because of like a unformed embryo?
1: There's a theory. So dermoid cysts belong to or are related to a family of um it's just called teratomas. Okay. Um, but teratomas, my understanding is teratomas are typically not they're not always benign. Um So there's a theory that some dermoid cysts come about as a result of abnormalities with maybe another fetus in the womb when you were kind of growing. Okay. And you kind of absorb that. Because when I was asking about it, my doctor said to me, oh, you were born with it? Basically, like, you've had it your whole life. And I
0: was like, oh,
1: okay. (laughs)
0: All right. They found that. Is that anything to do with the problems that you've had in the sense of, like, do you think because you had that there? You then started getting these problems like another cyst growing. And
1: um, I think if I didn't have the coil fitted and then developed the pelvic inflammatory, I would never have known about the cyst in the ovary until potentially it became cancerous, which was what my doctor told me. Um, because I never had any problems. I didn't have problems with my period, I never had period pain, I never had any other issues with my reproductive health up until that point, the point at which mm. I had the coil fitted and then it's triggered a chain of events. But to some extent I feel like it was kind of a it was a blessing in disguise because yeah, without it I wouldn't have known about all the other stuff. Yeah. Having said that, at the time that I had that surgery, they checked to see if I had endo and I didn't have endo, but I went back and had surgery in 2014, at which point I had developed endo. And right. my doctors believe that I developed endo as a result of the trauma to my reproductive system from my first operation. Really? Yeah, because um, apparently you can develop um, surgical endometriosis as a result of having had surgery or trauma to the area. Yeah.
0: That's really interesting. I've never, I, I feel like there's so much mixed information and research out there especially coming like like coming from someone who worked with endometriosis um (laughs) I never heard about surgical endometriosis but I do know that there's a lot of research into not a lot actually because there's not a lot at all but there is research into trauma and that women who have gone through some type of trauma more likely to have endometriosis and that's not necessarily physical trauma that can be emotional trauma as well so i don't know if perhaps like our body's response system to that like obviously stress causes disease like it does it causes heart failure it causes you know um you're more likely to get cancer with stress and stuff like that so um i guess going through trauma can then cause i don't know mutations in cells i i i haven't read the papers so um obviously to anyone listening um you would need to go away and look into it because i can't remember off the top of my head whilst i'm talking but i wonder if there's a similar link there like your your body's physically gone through trauma and the physical response to that and the stress of that has accumulated in mutations i don't know i've never heard of it but um that's yeah wow that's crazy that's definitely something to look into I'll try and put that in the show notes yeah so yes yeah, yeah. so they found the endometriosis and what level was it at, at that point
1: it was stage two when I had it diagnosed in 2014 and my surgeon just said to me well there's nothing that we can really do for you except watch for waiting which is just uh, come back when your endo is worse and we'll mm. do another laparoscopy and see how bad it is yeah um, He said, there's nothing we can do because all of the hormonal treatments that we would typically try you with, I can't, I can't have them because of the, having had the dermoid cyst in my first operation. Right. Um, so that wasn't an option. He just said, go away and
0: live a good life and (laughs) be as healthy as you can. But that's the thing. They don't tell you how to be healthy when you have endometriosis. So you got diagnosed with endo and that was two years ago now, right?
1: Um, 2014 so three years ago and I just had then yeah in 2015 I was diagnosed with fibroids and uterine polyps and suspected adenomyosis and then this year my endo got so bad um that I had to go back and I had excision surgery so I've had two operations this year to excise my endometriosis from my bladder and my bowels and my uterus because it had fused them together um and it was starting to cause me problems with my continence, and right. that's when I was like, "No, no the effect yeah. on my life is it's too much
0: now." Mm. I mean, and you've got fibroids, and what was the other thing? U- Adenomyos- Uterine polyps, you okay. and
1: suspected adenomyosis. Do
0: you want to quickly give an overview of what those are?
1: Uterine polyps. My understanding is essentially they're just like little skin tags um, that for me they're kind of just in the lining of the uterus but the problem with uterine polyps is that they make it exceptionally difficult to maintain pregnancy so even if you get pregnant your chance of miscarriage is exceptionally high because of the polyps so usually doctors like to remove them um, particularly if you're undergoing IVF or artificial insemination they'll generally perform surgery to remove the polyps to give you the best chance
0: of
1: conception.
0: Right and what how would you know if you had polyps do you feel them?
1: I don't feel mine I literally didn't know until the doctor told me
0: so how okay so how did they find out did you have like another surgery for the diagnosis of fibroids and stuff
1: no I went to a fertility specialist and they did some tests and stuff and and some scans and it was the most comprehensive um, scan I have ever had in my life it tells you like blood flow to your uterus and your pelvis and it has like it shows up the heat signature so you can see how good the blood flow is to the area yeah wow it was phenomenal it was actually phenomenal
0: that's incredible okay so at that point they also found fibroids
1: yeah they found fibroids as well
0: mine sounds that almost like a distortion
1: of sometimes they can be a distortion of the muscle but yeah Mm -hmm. it's like it's a growth um and i've got a couple of those apparently dotted around okay and
0: how did they affect
1: your health? they can affect ability to maintain pregnancy as well right. um, and increase your risk of miscarriage okay so coupled with only having one ovary which apparently I don't even have very good follicles in my ovary either so <laughs> it, that doesn't help
0: wow is that because that um did they discover that the fertility specialist
1: yeah, yeah. He said, I have follicles. He was like, you got follicles. But he was like, they're not the best.
0: Right, wow. Yeah. And then on top of that, potentially adenomyosis. Yeah. Which yeah. they can't actually... The only way... Am I right in saying this? The only way to actually prove you have adenomyosis is to remove it's the his... Yeah, And then yeah. check. Okay. Um, but that's like a... So... Uh, So that's like similar to endometriosis, but within the wall of the uterus, so kind of inside the muscle and it grows through. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, wow. So you've been diagnosed with all of these. Yeah. Is there... (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we're going to go into like the womb room and everything you're doing, because I think you're incredibly strong to be doing what you're doing. But also, I guess it's your light. Isn't it like that's what's pushing you through to yeah. do what you're doing? But I mean, I want to talk about like race and reproductive issues because you being diagnosed with all of these conditions is not necessary, it's not like by chance.
1: Yeah, so statistically, um, women from black and Asian women are more likely to present with reproductive health problems um, and they're least likely to receive support or seek help for them. Um, there tends to be, obviously, conditions like endo, It's the length of time to diagnosis is so long already, mm. but that time is even longer for um, BAME women. And some of that is a reluctance to seek support and help. Some of it is about our cultural narratives about womanhood and pain pain and how we internalize that um and some of it is about actually how we're treated by medical professionals when we do seek support
0: right I mean so can we break so- those down a little bit so because I know that there's a gender pain gap so women have to work hard to be diagnosed sorry to yeah. be recognized as being in as much pain as men but yeah you told me when we spoke before that uh black women or women from You know, ethnic minorities will also have to work harder than white women to be taken seriously for their pain. Do you know what is that to do with like the stereotypes behind like what? Why is that?
1: So historically, um, there has been a narrative among the medical profession particularly around gynecology so in during slavery there were a lot of um experiments that were carried out on black women for gynecological kind of purposes and testing and the belief was that black women didn't feel pain so sometimes they'd perform these operations and they wouldn't give um the women that they're performing you know women who were slaves essentially they were slaves they wouldn't give them painkillers and oh this God. narrative that black women don't feel pain or that black women don't feel pain in the same way that white women do like our um pain threshold does it i believe that black women's pain threshold is higher
0: but where would than that white come women's. from do you so do you think it's because uh, i have no idea but like, as a slave initially... you'd be scared of being like beaten or something so maybe you wouldn't you wouldn't complain or you wouldn't voice your pain. I don't think
1: it's that I think initially it stems from the fact that realistically like slavery it was underpinned by the fact that the be- the belief was that black people were not we weren't treated like humans there was no equality right. we were seen yeah. as being subhuman quite literally so there was this narrative that you know, we didn't feel pain and we were sexually promiscuous and we needed to be controlled because otherwise, you know, like we needed to be civilized. And within that narrative was this belief that we didn't feel pain in the same way. And that kind of just carried on um, for many, many years Mm -hmm. and wasn't really overtly questioned that much. Right and the the reality is there's loads of other things that intersect with for BAME women in their ability to access healthcare. like right. there is complete inequality in um women's healthcare, in particular for women from BAME communities we're least likely to um seek support or seek support straight away because a lot of that there's the social, political and economic kind of factors that come into that. Mm. Some of it is that there's still, to some extent, an integral mistrust about going to the doctors for certain things within our communities. And there's kind of a narrative around, there's a history of within the medical profession, testing being carried out on black bodies and it being hidden and covered up. Mm -hmm. And because of that, there is A certain level of mistrust among certain communities about why would your doctor want to prescribe you certain things or why would they want to try certain treatments and there's this feeling that it's and I've heard this before in conversations with women there's this overt fear that sometimes your doctor suggests things because there have been experiments you know medical tests and stuff carried out before to sterilize black communities so there's this underlying fear Jesus. that actually do they want to are, are they offering something because actually there's there's a hidden agenda there's a another narrative there's something else going on here that that's not widely or publicly discussed and you only have to look at kind of cases there's a case i think in the 70s in america where doctors were purposely infecting um, members of a poor community that was predominantly black with syphilis to sterilize black men and black women by giving them syphilis oh
0: my god and c- can people anyone so for people who i've never heard of this so for anyone who has hasn't heard of it or just anyone who wants to do some more research and, under- and you know, understand this situation, can we just Google that 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 famous case? That case you would find if you it. just
1: Google it. Yeah, it would come up. But I can. I'll have a little look, and um, I can yeah. send you some information. I'll put some stuff in the show notes because
0: yeah. I think that's yeah. really important for. Yeah, I think that's important for people to, have to be awareness. able to reference. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. and understand. So definitely. yeah, so there's that mistrust there. And I
1: think also it's the economics.
0: You have to consider, you know, it's not as simple
1: as, okay, you're in pain or you've got this symptom and you recognise that it's not normal and it's not healthy. Mm. But you need to pick up the phone and call the doctor and make an appointment. That is a barrier in itself because the way that a lot of GP surgeries have changed their appointment system means that you can't always get an appointment in advance. Sometimes you have to call and make an appointment on the day. And if you consider the socioeconomic differences for a vast majority of BAME women if you're working really long hours or you're working more than one job and you're raising a family potentially on your own maybe you have caring commitments for for a relative as well Mm. um if you don't have access to a car or your work or your job doesn't offer you flexibility how do you even fit getting that medical appointment into yeah. your life and then if you do have it and you're given a prescription prescription for something if your choice is between paying a bill or putting food on your table or feeding your kids or whoever else it, it might be that you're a caregiver for or having a paying for a prescription you're probably not going to pay for the prescription no. and I know because I've I've been in that situation yeah. where I'll just be like I don't need the prescription that badly I'll yeah. survive do you know I've, what's I've got that yeah <laughs>
0: And I think also it's now becoming harder, much harder, to get benefits. And I I know some people listening, especially in the UK, will be like, there are split views on people who have benefits. But I have worked with homeless young people. And it's incredible how easy it is to lose your benefits and how hard it is to get benefits when you really need it. And so, obviously, if you are on certain benefits you can get a free prescription. But to get those benefits in the first place is now becoming so hard. So, you know, it's you might not be at that point where you can access benefits or maybe you are at that point, but you can't get it because you're not get you're not being believed or, you know, the system is becoming so difficult. So you are in a situation where you can you can buy food, but you can't buy your prescription, you know. It's not as easy as like, oh, well just go and, you know, sign on and get a bit of income support. It's just, it doesn't work like that anymore. So we've got the history of, you know, slavery and experiments, social economic situations where women might not be able to access or afford uh, medical care. Then you've also got like scientifically that black women and women from ethnic minorities are more likely to have like several reproductive conditions and we're more likely to have certain reproductive conditions so um
1: we're more likely to have polycystic ovaries okay um, particularly if you're an asian woman um black women in particular are more prone to fibroids i think
0: statistically Mm, i think we're
1: 1.5 times more likely to have fibroids than white women are okay um do they know why some of it is just genetic okay. predisposition. Right. A lot of the time, that's what it is. It's just a genetic predisposition mm. that seems to predominantly affect BAME groups. Yeah. Um, and there tends to be high instances of having multiple conditions, so fibroids and PCOS, fibroids and endometriosis, PCOS and endometriosis. In my yeah. case, like pretty much
0: everything. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and I know that. So that that's... doesn't help sorry either oh no and i know it's actually uh like I don't, I don't know the stats but if you have one reproductive health condition it's much more likely you're going to have another especially with endometriosis like they're very yeah. like overlining um cause and effect kind of thing you know um yeah. so that's already likely across all women so then once you then add on you know your genetics that yeah is obviously affecting it more so there's that and then there's another subject that i wanted to talk about within that which is like hard to reach communities and communicating like effectively to other communities and cultures because when i worked with um an endo charity one of my major concerns was that we had women coming to us who had Uh, who were really open about talking about these kind of things or who had access to the internet or whatever it may be, it was easier for them to get in touch with us. Um, And I really noticed there was a lack of, not necessarily, there 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 was a lack of black women reaching out, but I saw them more than I would have seen Asian women or, yeah, just, you know, any other ethnic minorities there was was, it was that was really really rare and my concern was that we needed to start doing we needed to do outreach and change our approach as well because not you can't treat each you can't treat all groups the same in the sense of how you communicate something to them or how you support them because there's different needs there yeah
1: I think um some of it is about culturally how we engage with conversations about womanhood and the narrative of womanhood within our own communities Mm. pain is generally an integral part of the narrative of womanhood more widely in society anyway but particularly like from my personal experience um growing up in a very matriarchal family pain is like having pain it's just considered it is a normal part of womanhood you're told you know auntie so-and-so's got it and my aunt's cousin's uncle's dog's best friend's sister (laughs) also had this so you're not the only person like get over it it's just part it's just part of being a woman I have heard that so many times it's just part of being a woman you just have to get on with it you just have to put up with it Mm. and that um kind of narrative about pain is so so common and prevalent within black communities I find um and there's very much this idea this um sense that for black women you have to be you have to be strong we can't afford to be seen as being weak Mm -hmm. um not just within our communities but also within wider society because of how we're viewed in the experiences that we have so that narrative of like needing to remain strong all the time and not being able to admit weakness that ties into the narratives of pain that are centered around womanhood in your development as a woman anyway particularly at key parts of your life you know when you're going through puberty and you're having periods and yeah for some women that's kind of like your first real experience of um any pain or reproductive health problem is when you start to present with something during puberty yeah yeah so i think that's quite internalized as well um But I find, like you were saying, a lot of charities, women's health organisations across the UK, um, I just don't think that they're representative enough. I don't think that they do enough to reach out and engage with women from BAME communities. Mm. And I think realistically sometimes it's literally just as simple as having a conversation inviting these women into a space where they can feel safe because the reality is a lot of the time the reason that they're not engaging is because they look at the boards of these organizations and they don't see other people who look like them so how are they no. supposed to trust you yeah. and they don't see that you're out here working with their communities offering services to their communities that are culturally kind of focused and sensitive and in certain communities you know you can't go in and just have an open and honest discussion about a subject matter you have to approach it with more tact yeah. because of how it will be received because there's still a lot of stigma and shame centered mm-hmm. around the female body and development of it and what it looks like and what it does and yeah you have to be careful about how you have certain conversations yeah and I think historically maybe that has just seemed like oh it's a lot of work so we kind of won't really reach out but I feel in the age of information like there's no excuse connectivity these days is so easy and I think organizations have to do more to target services and open up access to these services to women from these communities and really take into account making sure ensuring that these women feel safe in these spaces having these conversations that these women want to access these services that they know how to access these services and I think Organisations, I feel like big organisations, big women's health organisations and the NHS and other women's health charities should do more to actually take grassroots, companies and organizations and startups that are working within these communities already women who are from these communities and put them at the forefront of their work Mm -hmm. to help them engage the communities that they're now starting to say that they want to work with because i hear a lot of organizations saying they want to be more inclusive saying they want to be more diverse and representative in their service provision but they're not really doing anything about it and i think there's there's women within bme communities who are starting this work like they're starting to have these conversations within their own communities because they recognize the lack of service provision you only have to engage with them to be able to essentially give those women a platform to Mm. bring their communities to you and I think organizations maybe haven't recognized the value in that and I think they're starting to see it now but I, I don't feel like there's enough being done. And I think if you consider that statistically, we're more likely to suffer with these problems and least likely to get the support and the help for them. I think it makes it even more important to make sure that these communities people are reaching out to them. It's about access to information. A lot of charities and women's health organizations are very research focused and research is excellent, but research isn't helping me to manage my life and my condition right now today, as I'm struggling with it. Mm -hmm. And it's also access to the research. All of these charities and organizations, they do this research, wonderful, but who actually sees it, who reads it? Because in order to understand an academic paper or even a well-written, report, you need to have a certain level of education and the women who are suffering with these conditions on a day-to-day basis probably aren't out here looking for medical reports to read in their spare time and they wouldn't have necessarily have access to read medical reports anyway, not for free at least and Mm. you're probably not going to pay the price to read one, let's be realistic. No. You need to have a certain level of accessibility to this information so that women can take it in, they can digest it and then they can make decisions about how they think that information will affect their life and how they manage their condition and the reality is a lot of this research is being done but it's not reaching these women at at the end and the research is there but then there's no the follow-up is that there's no development really there's no real investment in bringing these women support services whether those support services are physical support services digital support services There's no real investment in that as a result of this research. And that's half the problem. Mm.
0: I mean, I think think the problem also stems from the fact that there's not enough money in women's health. So trying to get funding for the charity, like the women's health charity that I worked for, was incredibly difficult. I mean, really, really difficult. And that's why endometriosis is so under researched and so misunderstood you know so we do need more research because that's going to help us a find ways to manage it and and maybe find a cure maybe find a cause etc but we also need to be implementing extra services at the same time and services that reach everyone not just people who can like go who are ready and willing to go and use whatever there is online or whatever that may be so I think you kind of need a mix of both and you need to be implementing whoever is reading those whoever those studies are for if that's for the medical profession to do something about it then they need to start implementing that but there needs to be the money for that in the first place and I think the problem is is that women's health is still undervalued
1: within you
0: know within the industry so the money is not there
1: which I, do you know, this frustrates me so much because statistically, so when I set up the womb room in 2011, the Mm -hmm. National Institute of Health and Clinical Excellence estimated that one in two women in the uk would present with a reproductive health problem at some point during their life course wow. the last time i went back and double checked that information they're now estimating that nearly every single woman in the uk will present with a reproductive health problem at some point during her life course and i understand a reproductive health problem that's a very catch-all phrase that could mean anything like severe mm. period pain or endometriosis like it could be any end of the spectrum but if you consider this women make up just under 52% of the population in the UK. Mm. That's a phenomenal amount of women who were pretty much all going to present with a reproductive health problem at some point during their lifetime. Mm. Why are we not providing services for them? Like, it seems like it should be a no-brainer because the reality is, you know, research shows that these conditions they have an impact on your ability to be economically engaged and maintain a job your ability to be socially engaged so it's not just that it's not just physical it is a wider societal issue Mm -hmm. and having women in the workplace is good for our economy supporting women in the workplace is essential if we want our economy to grow and we want women to flourish and have autonomy over their lives and live well. And it's also important to increase representation and diversity in companies to put women in positions of power within companies to give women opportunities and access because we're not in a situation where more traditional kind of family settings where, you know, dad goes out, mom stays at home and is a homemaker. We don't live in that society anymore. No. Um, And there's, women want to go out and work and live full lives and get to whatever the point of success is for them in their career. But in order Mm. to do that, particularly if you have a reproductive health problem, you need the support to be able to get to that place in the in the first place yeah and when I did some research into the psychosocial impacts that reproductive health problems have on young women's lives and identities one of the things that I consistently found with the women that I interviewed was a lot of them would say that they wouldn't go for high level management positions in their companies or for promotions not because they weren't capable not because they weren't qualified but because they didn't feel that they would be able to cope with the role or that they would be supported to manage the role Based on their reproductive health problems and the impact that that had on their ability to, you know, stay late at work frequently or um, not take a lot of time off. Yeah. And I just think literally just a lack of support and knowledge is preventing women from living their full life. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that's sad. Yeah, no, it is. I think both, that's completely another conversation, but both you and I have like directly experienced that. So, yeah, I think it's, yeah, it really has to change. And that's what you're working towards now with the room room. So, do you, you want to tell us a bit about the room, the, oh, gosh, <laughs> the room room, <laughs> <laughs> because I know there's like kind of two components about, of that. Um, and you're working on some really exciting projects at the moment. So do you want to tell us like what you guys do and how women can get involved?
1: Yeah. So um, I set up The Womb Room initially as a blog just because I wanted a safe space where I could share my experiences with other women. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of just grew from there. We were delivering reproductive health awareness courses in schools to teenage girls to teach them how to recognise the signs and symptoms that they might have a problem, how to self-advocate at the doctor, um, which was a challenge in itself just getting into schools. Yeah. So course. we stepped away from kind of doing that work for a bit, but we're going back to it now. But more kind of predominantly our focus is on how do we build and develop services for women who are living with these conditions or Mm. who haven't had a diagnosis but are definitely living with the symptoms of something so we um we're creating a digital network which allows women to connect with professionals who can support them and give them knowledge and information that's up-to-date and accessible and understandable. Amazing. Uh, A a community of other women who understand their experiences and can share advice because I find you literally you are the expert on your body it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter what a doctor tells you Mm -hmm. you know when something is wrong and the reality is i feel like the community of women who have reproductive health problems is so large and some women have done so much research that actually they probably know things that your medical professional might not have even come across oh my gosh
0: yes completely yeah
1: so there's literally a community of experts who are living with this stuff because they've researched the hell out of it yeah um because of how it impacts their life so community is really really important to everything that we do both digitally and physically mm. but the other thing that I'm really keen to do for women is also connect them with brands that positively support their well-being not companies that are just going to market a product at them because they recognize that they can exploit this woman because she's vulnerable yeah. and maybe feels a bit desperate because of the situation that she's in with her health yeah we want to be able to build up and promote brands that women can trust. They've mm. trusted because women have tried them and they've said this product works for me because these companies are ethical, because they actually have women's welfare and interests at heart. Because I find there's a lot of kind of trial and error around let me try this thing. I don't know if it's gonna work. Let yeah. me try something else. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: I spent shit loads of money on things like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're kind
1: of looking at how do we take that and put it all in one place so women can come and access this network that will give them everything. And part of our digital offer includes connecting women with um, digital events. So that would be the way that we're doing them at the moment is we have a Facebook Live every single month with a different women's health professional um, well, that's incredible. who has expertise. In different things. Yeah. So we've got a pelvic floor specialist. <coughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, we've got a pelvic floor specialist. We've got a contraceptive um, research doctor. Um, we've got mental health experts. We've got counsellors and they will come and do once a month. We'll have a different woman who will do a Facebook live and you can ask her any questions you want to ask her. Mm. Um, and that's just through our Facebook page. That's um, amazing because I think it's it's important to make sure that information is accessible to people.
0: Mm.
1: But in terms of our physical service provision, so we launched our um, Real Talk event series a couple of weeks ago. So the idea was that we take everything that we're doing digitally and we're working on creating digitally and we'd make it physical. So we'd mm-hmm. connect women in a space where they can share, they can meet other women. Um, we have a panel of speakers who are women who've got a lot of knowledge and experience and expertise across different areas of the women's health field. So at September's event, we had a counsellor, we had the founder of a female sex toy company, we had um, a PhD candidate who looks at health inequalities, um, and we had a wellbeing and information kind of officer who works on sexual and reproductive health education, delivering it. That's correct. and how we share that so we connect women in this space have some food have some drinks and we talk about a different subject matter each month so our first month was predominantly looking at sexual health and contraceptives mm-hmm. and it was wonderful because you know women cried women laughed um some women felt safe enough to share really really intimate parts of their journeys and their struggles with their fertility and their relationships mm-hmm. and I thought it was nice that in a room full of strangers they felt safe enough in the space to really be open and share these things yeah. um and I think that was for me like that was incredibly moving that because it was what I wanted to create but to actually see it come to fruition in real mm-hmm. life
0: yeah it must be an incredible
1: and, it was it was it was wonderful we had such great feedback from everybody to kind of say that they're so glad that they found this and that it exists and somebody's doing it because for ages they've been struggling on their own and they think that having these type of events is important for them to to be able to connect with communities of other women who understand their experiences yeah Um, And to be able to have these conversations in public settings, because there's no shame in it. And actually, that's what we need to do. We need to work on changing the narrative Mm -hmm. about women's bodies. Um, And another key part of the event, really, it's about getting women to also have fun as well as learning. So we did interactive activities. We got women to make, you know, Play-Doh model vaginas and (laughs) put condoms on with beer goggles to kind of look at sexual safety and share secrets and worries that they had about their reproductive well-being um to show them that they're not alone yeah um yeah it was a great night and I'm looking forward to the next one
0: yeah they sound amazing and I'm so sad I missed the first one um I'm definitely going to be at the next one. So you're doing one a month for yes. the next 11 months. 12 months. 12 months. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, 11, 11 months now. Now. <laughs> um, <laughs> So where can we get tickets and find information?
1: So um, you can go over to our website, which mm-hmm. currently we're redeveloping to make sure that we can provide a better offer to women. Um, but you can put your email address into the website and sign up to the newsletter and we'll be sending out over the next two weeks information about all of the upcoming events for the rest of 2017 and into 2018. Just go to www.thewinroom.co.uk and um, sign up and we'll send all the information
0: out amazing well thank you so much for coming on thank you so much for coming on it's been so interesting I think you've talked about some of the most important topics we've covered so far so yeah thank you for bringing your like amazing amount of knowledge and yeah wisdom to the podcast it's been great thank you for having me
1: you know, I really appreciate the time and the patience
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, thank you so much take care thank you have bye. a good day bye mind? so that's it Thank you so much for listening. It really means so much to me that you know this is reaching you guys um, and helping you. Please do keep sending messages in and let me know what you think. I would love to know who you want to hear from or just what subjects you'd like me to cover. Um, so, you know, I want this to be as useful as possible. So, please do let me know what will help you. Um, if you like this episode, please rate review. And or subscribe it helps others to find the podcast if you want to say hi to me i'm on instagram at this end this underscore endolife i'm on twitter at this underscore endolife with a capital t e and l and i'm on facebook at this endolife.com you can also head over to my site this endolife.com to have a read of my thoughts and ramblings on endometriosis reviews interviews, lots of stuff. Um, I also have a column in endometriosis news, which you can keep updated with on my own website. And finally, uh, I've announced details of the first endo meetup. Um, so that is on my Instagram. And I my plan is for us to go to pharmacy, which is an absolutely lovely um, cafe restaurant Um, in Notting Hill that does loads of endo-friendly foods. So I'd love to see you there. The dates and details are on my Instagram. And I am also running a workshop on October the 8th with the lovely Vicky Williams, who I interviewed several weeks back. Um, She's a yoga therapist and Reiki healer. And we are doing that. She's lost control in East London. Uh, And the day will involve yoga um, and meditations for womb healing um, and like releasing pelvic tension. We'll also be doing coaching around, you know, changing our lives and changing our mindsets around living with endometriosis. It's going to be a really healing, lovely session and there will be some goodies for you as well. Um, I am also working on the endo brunch. I am testing out menus at the moment, so keep your eye open for me sharing um, some recipes and some menus to see what you guys think. As soon as that's perfected, I'll be n- announcing the date. And uh, I will be offering free coaching and mentoring sessions very soon, so do keep, um, sign up for the email, for the newsletter, and I will look look there. Do sign up for the newsletter and the details of that will be announced. Again, thank you so much for listening. I really hope that this interview has been useful to you. Um, There are details in the show notes of lots of things that we've covered. Yeah, I will see you in two weeks.